Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Yeah, if you could just start off by telling me a little little story about how what your journey to psychology was like. As a college student, I had no idea what I wanted to study. You can't graduate college without a major. I took a psychology class. I thought it was fascinating. I loved the kinds of questions that were asked. So I chose that as my major. I had no intention of going to graduate school. So I thought majors didn't matter. At the end of my junior year, I had a faculty member who I really respected kind of pull me aside and ask if I'd thought about graduate school, which I hadn't because I don't come from a family where that's something we've done. I didn't even really know what it meant. And he just said that I ought to think about it. I joke with my students that my plan was to get a job at Enterprise Rent-A-Car because they always seemed to be hiring. And so I thought I could get a job there. But when this faculty member pulled me aside and said, I think you ought to consider it, I started researching and applying and just kept following my curiosity. I never had a better plan. And I kept following the questions that captured my attention. I've been very blessed by that process, actually. Cool. That affirming voice really counts for a lot, too. That person was like, you're kind of good at this. 100%. I think about that a lot with my own students, too, that there are students that I look at and think, why have you not thought about these things? And it's because they've never had someone speak that truth into their life. And so I'm incredibly grateful for this faculty mentor who did that to me. Yeah. So what were some of those early questions that really lit you up in in terms of following your curiosity, whether it was whatever you ended up writing a dissertation on or something else? Yeah. When I started my doctoral work, I actually was studying how children learn from media. I was interested in how we learn from different platforms, so books and videos, but then also what the role of something being fantastical or like a cartoon or something that couldn't really happen versus something that could happen. How does that impact our learning? When I was a third-year graduate student, my advisor received a grant to explore different aspects of religious cognition and children's developing beliefs about the soul. I said, well, that sounds interesting. And I just followed my curiosity into these questions and realized that these are interesting academic questions around religious and scientific cognition, but they were also questions that I had really compartmentalized and not ever answered myself and not ever really engaged with any kind of seriousness. I was perfectly content going to church, wearing one set of beliefs and then going to school and wearing a different set of beliefs in a way that by the time I got to this point in my education, I realized was pretty inauthentic. 
So I found it to be a really interesting way of not just trying to contribute to scientific research, but also to contribute to the settling of my own mind, which of course is why I'm still doing research in this area. Because every time you learn one thing, you leave with five new questions. Yeah, because that's kind of the nature of a good scientific question anyway, is it's usually pretty narrow. So you're not controlling for too many variables. You're looking at one small piece and then you get that piece and then that leads you to more questions and you need still need the other pieces. So were you part of those experiments where they're like, Hey, little kids, there was a mouse and the mouse died. I have cited those studies quite a bit. I did not do them, but I did design a study as part of my pre-dissertation work. I collected some data in China and asked elementary school age children about John and what would happen if John lost an arm? Would he still be John? And it got to the point where we would ask things like, what if John lost his head? Would he still be John? And as a mother, this question takes on whole new layers of complexity. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting question. I love your first question, too, just because I have a toddler now. I wonder all the time about the way she's taken in media. I'm like, how is she processing all this information? Well, let's dive into some of these questions. You know, a lot of these came in from people who follow us on social media or who took our theopsych classes online. And it really shows that there's still a broad spectrum of how people think of psychology as a science within the realm of Christianity. And people are coming from all different contexts and cultural situations. In some churches, talking about mental health is not even really a safe thing to do. People have to like really approach that topic really carefully. Some places are totally open and having their psych referral lists available to their congregations. And then kind of everything in between. We got this question, what are the similarities and differences between how Christian psychologists and non-Christian psychologists do science, particularly when it comes to faith and morality and things that might be of significance to Christianity? So it's, it's a really interesting and I think important question because psychology is so broad it's really easy to use that word in a conversation. You could have 10 people in a conversation using that word and all actually thinking about something different. I think it's really important to understand how that term is being used and what it does and doesn't mean. And recognizing that some of our assumptions about what is and isn't included might not actually be bore out with the actual lives of psychologists. If we're interested in thinking about psychological science, this is a phrase that broadly is talking about the use of empirical methods, testing, observation, measurement, to describe and explain human thinking and behavior. That's a pretty standard definition, and it's huge. In this definition, we are going to be talking about people whose research program is very narrowly focused, for example, on how the rods and cones in your eyes turn physical light that enters your eyeballs into a perception created in the brain. But it's also those people are going to be housed next to someone who studies mental illness and medication or different kinds of therapies, who is going to be next to someone like me, who's a developmental researcher. And so I study how we change 
change and stay the same within the specific scopes around religious cognition and scientific cognition. All of these count as psychological science and collectively we make up the whole of what psychology is across a couple of broad domains. I know Blueprint just put out the primer or put out a primer recently, which kind of sketches those domains. And I think that's a really helpful way of orienting to the scope of the field. When we think about the question that you actually asked, what does it look like to do psychology as a Christian compared to doing psychology as someone who is not a person of faith? Even that question, there's probably at least two answers with a spectrum in between. I tend to be on the side that says if we're doing psychology as a Christian, it influences how I engage the questions. It influences why I want to answer these questions and what I think the value of this kind of work is. And so even though my direct research may not contribute to someone else's flourishing, I ultimately want to contribute to this space in a way that does even if it's a couple of steps removed. I think that's true of non-Christian psychologists as well, but I have a very clear teleology in mind about what flourishing looks like. And that teleology is not derived from science. It's derived from my Christian convictions around what a good life is and what human flourishing is. And so I'm going to have some assumptions and some starting places that might be different from my non-Christian psychological neighbor, if you will. But at the end of the day, both of us are using the same kinds of methods applied to our questions. And so some of the differences will come in terms of what questions we ask and what we might want to move a good life toward and the way that we might want to apply these findings But we shouldn't have these massive disagreements because we're both studying people. And so when there are disagreements, that gives us opportunity to probe what are some of the assumptions that went into the methods that we used or the questions that we ask, which again, although that might that conflict might feel uncomfortable, it actually is an opportunity to better understand humans, which is what psychologists, Christian or not, want to do. On the other end of the spectrum, you do have folks who will make an argument that when you start with a Christian psychology, which is really you take scripture first and then derive all of your research questions out of that, that you might end up with essentially a totally different set of scientific knowledge because of the different starting places. This is a philosophy of science question, which I know just enough to know that I know very little about. I think that's an interesting idea, but I'm not convinced that there is this parallel universe of possibilities in a Christian psychology as something separate from psychology done well as a Christian. Totally, because the methodology, maybe you should say a little bit more specifically what it might look like to do an experiment. Can you give some insight so, who might not know what uh, even a psychological experiment might be like? One of my areas of research is in children's church ministries. But one of the very first questions that we had to answer was, what are we trying to measure? If we want to say what makes for effective children's church ministry, we have to articulate what do we mean by effective? What's our benchmark here? What's the end goal? What's the thing that we think children's ministry ought to be producing? To answer this question, we started looking at other research, not in children's ministry, and found that a lot of research looking at the role of church in just human life, especially around adults and related to health, focuses on this idea of social support. 
social support is this psychological construct that essentially is talking about our experience of relationships. And we have perceived social support, like I believe people will help me if I need it. And then there's also received social support, which is I actually needed help and I got it. Together, these things predict all sorts of positive life outcomes. And we see social support exist differently in people who go to church and are a part of religious congregations than people who are not. When we're a part of religious associations, we have more social support. So we wanted to ask the question, is that true for children? We can't answer that question unless we have a way of measuring children's experience of social support at church. So we started with some surveys that have been used in adults. We adapted the questions for children who are elementary age. So we toned down the language. We made the questions specific to the kinds of situations that children find themselves in. We had focus groups with pastors, with children's educators, got their feedback on these questions, continually consulting the theory of social support as well as the lived experience of people who do this kind of ministry work. And then we pilot tested it. So then we started doing cognitive interviews with children where we would ask them the question, ask them to answer it in this kind of one to four way that the questions are worded. Like, I agree, I disagree. And then we would ask them to elaborate. So tell me, who is it that you're thinking about when you answer this question? What are you thinking about? Tell me an experience to figure out if they're actually asking the question that we think they're answering. Because we can use words that to us mean something that a child hears or another just adult, right? That we can use words that mean something to us that are interpreted very differently. And so we went through this process ultimately to create a measure that then we collected over a thousand children's responses on and correlated it and looked for connections with other outcomes like pro-social behavior, self-esteem, spirituality. We controlled for if they go to Christian school or not. And so we looked at all these things to ask the question, is this a valid and reliable way of assessing if children experience social support at church? And once we've developed that, now we've gone on and used that measure in subsequent studies to ask, what does social support predict? Why does it matter? How does it matter? And what are some of these downstream implications and also some antecedents of social support? I think that is fantastic. Yeah, (laughs) so do I. (laughs) So did you create the first scale of social support in children or just the first one at church? It was the first one at church. We looked at adults' social support at church and Mm -hmm. children's social support at school. Mm -hmm. And then we've adapted in collaboration with our children's pastors for a children's social support at church scale. Cool. We call it the Kids Church Survey. Would you come to different conclusions, different answers, doing science as a Christian in this certain way? You lean towards mm, maybe not, a little bit skeptical of that. But even in the way that you're describing that your faith shapes the questions you have and the possible implications and that that tell us that theologically defined purpose, that is true of everyone. in different. It's not just like Christians and non-Christians. Everyone is formed by a system of belief. And that is not just Christian or non-Christian. There's people from other faith traditions of conservative versions of those faith traditions and liberal versions of those faith traditions to being atheist, to being agnostic, not just like a black and white this or that type thing. 
Yeah. And I think that's actually a really, a really good point and a good perspective to bring to this question. I think part of why I react to this question of like, no, Christian psychology doesn't look anything different Mm -hmm. is because science, when done well, will have multiple voices at the table. And so I, I think it's interesting, for example, in medical research that when medical research was dominated by males, well, who were the participants? They were also males. And so we're studying what are the precursors and symptoms of heart attacks, for example, and we're looking at this in men. And so we make this list and we develop these recommendations. And then lo and behold, it turns out that we are not capturing what heart attacks in women look like, because even though we both have bodies, they're not exactly the same. And until we have women at the table pushing back and saying, but might it look different? You know, based off of my background, my expertise and my experiences, I suggest it might look different. It might not, but that's an empirical question. Until we have multiple voices at the table really pushing that, we're missing something. And so I think it's important to have the Christian voice at the table to shape the nature of the conversation But if we also assume that we have the corner on truth, I think we'll miss something. I think that's true in the way we engage theology as well. And this is not a statement that kind of all theology is equal. I'm not trying to make that statement. But as soon as I've stepped into the position of asserting my own kind of corner on any piece of knowledge, I've lost the humility that leaves me open to learn, to change, and even to be prompted by the Holy Spirit. That, that's right. That intellectual humility that lets us be able to hear the ways that our experience might have shaped the things that we are claiming as absolute truth. We need other types of people around us to help us maybe see some blind spots. I didn't really talk about doing science versus being a scientist. I don't know if you wanted me to. Yeah, let's dip into that. Yeah. What is that distinction? One of the things I'm interested in is Christian engagement with science. And this actually is related back to some of my questions around media as a master's student, where I wanted to know how children drew the boundaries around what was real and what was not, with the sense that we can learn from things that are real and we can't learn from things that are not, or at least we learn differently. This idea that how we draw the boundaries matters. And so we draw boundaries differently as a function of like cultural input and all these other things. And so that question shaped my trajectory in asking questions about when and why do Christians draw the boundaries the way they do around science? If you look at some of the research, it will say things like Christians don't actually have a problem with science. But if you look really close, sometimes that conclusion is actually derived because Christians will delete the sections of science that they find problematic. If you redraw the boundaries around what's real science versus what's not, well, then I can be like Thomas Jefferson and cut out bits of my Bible and be like, I accept this because I've taken all the bits that are difficult for me. Uh, I don't think that's authentic. And so in this question of how do Christians engage with science? There are these related questions about what does it mean to be a scientist? And there is some fascinating research out of social psychology that shows that we have some pretty pervasive anti-science biases. It varies according to culture. And by culture, I also mean socio-cultural demographics, even within, say, the U.S., But when we have these anti-science biases, it's usually because we associate science with atheism. So to be a scientist, 
is a categorical statement. And there's some great work that explores how these categorical statements can actually push people away from engaging science. A lot of this work looks at female engagement in STEM fields, where if you talk about being a scientist, this categorical assumption of all of your beliefs about what it is to be this kind of person, women are much less comfortable with that. But when you phrase the question around doing science, women and girls, even at the point where they're rejecting these categorical kind of identity statements, they are all on board with the process of science and the doing of science. I think this is really interesting relative to some of our science Christianity conversations, because I wonder to what extent people perceive a competition between I am a Christian, I am a scientist. Mm -hmm. But can we rephrase the question to be a Christian who does this thing called science, even in terms of how we use the language around these and what that might do for the church overall? In my own life, I think about like I'm like a creative person, (laughs) but taking on the identity of artist is very difficult for me. (laughs) I could say I'm happy to say here's some things I do. I write fiction I make films, you know, (laughs) but so in that sense, it's true for me, too, in in just a different realm. But I think it it matters. I I mean, in the sense of you look at how women, when they apply for jobs, they apply for jobs that they feel like they've satisfied 90 percent or some atrociously high number of the requirements because now they say I can own this identity. But men will apply for jobs when they satisfy like half because it's this like I'll develop into that identity. But women, we're not willing to own that identity until we've come much further. And there's some cultural pressures and that's not necessarily this conversation. Yeah, but it's interesting to note. So speaking of the church and professional psychology, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we can think of the role of the Christian and particularly the church or church leadership and just lay people too in caring for people who might have mental health struggles or be in a mental health crisis. Different types of churches will have kind of different, like I mentioned in the beginning, have different attitudes and dispositions towards mental health. So there's a kind of a spectrum there. Then in terms of lay people, will also have different levels of comfortability with pursuing professional counseling. And so I just wondered if you might share some thoughts on that and how you would respond to those types of issues. It's such a good question. I don't know how to change individual churches' views on this. Some of them are so deep-seated. I actually think that's a wrong position from kind of a theology of what it means to be a body of Christ. There's some really interesting work that I know just enough to say what I'm about to say, dealing with the split between religious institutions and science. So when science became professionalized, it was outside of the clergy That was the same time that the pastorate started to be professionalized. So now we have these very deep but narrow and non-intersecting tracks of people who do science, which, of course, would include psychology, which is its own track in that broad kind of scientific term. And so there's not a lot of intersection here. But I think that what that means for us as modern people is that we can't expect any one person to know all that there is to know. And so maybe we don't need to know all there is to know. But if I have a problem, 
don't I want to bring all the relevant tools to bear to help me solve that problem? I think the answer should be yes, right? So how can I best understand this problem, address this problem and treat this problem? And that might mean that I need to get expertise that any one person might not be capable of holding. If I have a plumbing problem, I'm not going to call my pastor. I'm going to call the plumber. If I have a mental health problem, should I call my pastor or should I call someone with specific tools to help me address that particular problem? Now, of course, I realize that mental health and plumbing are quite different. And so perhaps that's too difficult a distinction to make because of the this intersection of spirituality and mental health. I don't think it's wrong to go to a pastor and to say, hey, I'm having these issues. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we shouldn't expect one pastor to be able to satisfactorily address an entire community's concerns. That's the recipe for burnout. To say like, hey, pastor, this is a problem I'm having. What might you have me do? And then to have a pastor say, oh, we have this counselor who can help you with that. I will pray for you. And I would like you to see this counselor to walk you through. I think that there's a lot of power in that and saying we are not a community with one person in the sense of like, we can't over rely on our pastors in that way. Yeah, if church was like, they had someone in their midst with some kind of crisis, like a death in the family or some kind of other medical crisis, like a stroke, people would be providing that social support. Mm-hmm. They might be providing just generous listening support. They might be bringing meals by. So there's always a role for social support that the church can provide and provide really well. But I was thinking while you were talking about the body of Christ and its array of giftedness, if you were doing a remodel on the building and you had some architects and designers or engineers Mm -hmm. in your congregation, you might ask if they want to be part of the project, if they want to lend their expertise because they're your people and they're sitting right there. And the same might be true. You might have some psych experts who would be able to help the pastor. A lot of pastors aren't given in their seminary training any sort of psych education or mental health education. And then one last point is I thought of in the Bible, in scripture, some of the first folks for which it said they're filled with the Holy Spirit were the artisans who were working on the tabernacle. Mm. Uh, maybe the second person was this was like Bezalel or whatever. <laughs> Probably going to have to fix that in post if I said the name wrong. But, <laughs> you know, like the guy who's doing like etchings really well. Mm. And it's said of him that he's filled with the spirit. So in our pre-conversation, we talked a lot about that, like secular sacred divide, like kind of just getting rid of that. If you could say about someone doing that kind of work and doing it well, it could be said they're filled with the spirit. They're partnering with God in the work. Yeah. And the same could be true of a professional psychologist. Totally. I think there is legitimate fear that psychology is trying to explain away different spiritual phenomena, right? If it's all just in our heads, then it can't be real. But anybody who's read Harry Potter knows that's not true, right? That's just a little bit of a spoiler here. But I love at the end of that, at the end of this book series, when Harry asks Dumbledore, is this real or is it all in my head? And Dumbledore's response essentially says, it being in your head, does that make it any less real? 
And I think that's a really powerful way of thinking about this, actually, that just because we can have psychological explanations, even for spiritual experiences, not necessarily mental health issues, although we can take that track as well. But let's talk about like the positive spiritual experiences. I could talk about what's happening in your brain and we're aspiring and we can think about the conditions that would bring about and evoke these emotional experiences. So now I have all these naturalistic, mechanistic explanations. Does that make my holistic lived body experience any less meaningful? And I think the answer is only if you have a worldview where the only thing that matters are the small constituent parts that make us up. But if we think that we are more than just our neurons, then these are not competing explanations. They're actually enriching explanations. And so if we want to take that same model and apply it to mental disorder or mental health problems, having multiple layers of explanation just gives us more tools to help someone who is suffering. And isn't that what we want to do as members of the church? We need to be really careful about drawing these lines in the sand where it's like, well, this is spiritual and this is everything else because they're actually, rather than being side by side in different categories, I think that they're more like the layers of rock over geological time where they're just compounded on, but together you have the mountain. That leads in great to this next question I was going to ask you about spiritual practices. And there's been some research around how spiritual practices influence human formation or our character, things like prayer, meditation, mm-hmm. group singing. There's been some of these research studies. But what actually defines a spiritual practice around what might be called spiritual? I noticed earlier you mentioned using a measurement of spirituality in children too. Mm-hmm. So what are sort of the things that could refer to? <laughs> so there are whole books on measures full of different ways of measuring religion and or spirituality, because of course, those are not the same thing. One of the kind of shortcut, quick and easy ways of thinking about spirituality, specifically from a psychological perspective, has to do with emotionality and these felt connections. That's a phrase that I particularly like. And so spirituality could be referring to your experiences in nature if you're not necessarily a theist, right? Like these just kind of like emotional experiences of connection with something bigger than yours. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Specifically in the theistic context, I think those things still apply, but often then they are channeled toward the person of Christ. When we think about what a spiritual practice is, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is a spiritual practice is what you decide to call spiritual. And I'm not sure it's that helpful to try to elevate specific kinds of practices over others, giving some a label of spiritual, like when I pray, when I meditate, when I sing hymns, when I attend church, these are spiritual things. But when I change a dirty diaper, when I sit patiently with a student who needs one more round of revisions as they're developing the skill of writing, or when I wait patiently on the freeway instead of honking, even though I really want to honk, Those don't, we don't easily want to call those spiritual, but aren't they also developing in me certain capacities of humility, of patience, of tolerance, of empathy that are certainly consistent with the fruit of the spirit and point me toward Christ likeness? 
Mm-hmm. I think that when we have this kind of distinction between like the spiritual things that I do and everything else, that really sets us up to be two different people. When if we are going to serve and engage in the body of Christ, we are called to wholeness in that, right? Christ likeness is not fractured. It is whole and it is pervasive throughout my daily activities. I'm not trying to diminish what I'll call classic spiritual practices. You might be expanding the definitions a little bit, right? Because what is a prayer? Do you have to be folding your hands and stringing together sentences? Could a prayer just be a word or could it just be a noticing a moment or just saying thank you? We have a class in our Theopsych online class about embodiment. Mm -hmm. And there's a section that has a lot about spiritual practices that links out to some of the research on the science of prayer and all those types of things. But what you're saying resonates with me because when you're like a working mom with a toddler and you're like, oh, dang, where's my hour of quiet time in the morning gone? That's just not going to happen, you know? And so trying to apply a, a more mindful state to just the mundane moments, quote unquote, mundane moments of life creates those moments of connection, even when I'm not doing the traditional practices if I'm not reflecting on a text or in my prayer closet or whatever, but feeling grateful that my daughter's in a great mood and she's laughing about something, you know, and just directing that gratitude to God. You just kind of live off those moments sometimes when your life is busy and you have littles to take care of and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think there is incredible power in kind of formalized, ritualized, liturgical practice. And I'm saying that as someone who's at a Southern Baptist institution, but I think that there is something really grounding in these ritualistic actions with others. And so I am not advocating the position of the only way you should pray is when you're stuck on the freeway trying not to honk at someone. I do (laughs) think that there is value in cultivating intentional space for what we might call Christian discipline practice. Mm -hmm. But I just don't think that's necessarily hierarchically different than our daily life. And I think that when we approach it that way, then we end up kind of organizing our lives to value these ivory towers in a way that undervalues our the incarnational missional presence in the world. Using whatever Christian disciplines I practice in my prayer closet, my ivory tower, and using them to actually motivate me to get into the weeds with people whom I desperately need for my flourishing and whom God has placed me in front of for their flourishing. I think that those are very holy and spiritual practices. From a psychological perspective, the only difference between them is the difference we attribute to them. And so I I just think that we should have a more expanded, robust and holistic view of what does it mean to be a person in this place? We might have the same psychological processes and let's start thinking, can we think more broadly about the ways in which we tell narratives around what a spiritual practice is and what holy living is? Love it. You got my book. So just pivotings. I feel like you're really masterful at this integration stuff. And I know that you do a lot of this work with your students, too, and showing them how to integrate theology and psychology. Can you cite any other like specific examples of the way you think the church could benefit? Ways to a listener might imagine how we could 
love people better with the tools of psychology. Some of the children's ministry work that that I've done, and my colleague just published a book with his wife, who's a play therapist based on our research, and it's aimed specifically for children's pastors, though I think it's relevant to anyone who's serving in ministry. It is Trauma-Informed Children's Ministry, A Practical Guide to Reaching Hurting Kids. Oh, that's amazing. It's great because it's based on really good research. Of course, I say that I was involved in the research. So that sounds uh, that's a little biased there, but I think it's really <laughs> exceptional research. But this book in particular is written for a practicing audience. So there's not numbers in here beyond maybe some percentages, but it's not talking about the research, but really about what does this mean for how we organize Sunday mornings with kids? And one of the consistent findings throughout our various research projects is that even though culturally we have this instinct to make church fun and entertaining, I call it the sexy model of children's ministry, right? We're going to entertain them to Jesus. We have this impulse and I understand that impulse. I have three kids and I want them to come home from church and be like, that was really fun. Like, that's what I want for them. (laughs) But that impulse isn't always aimed in the right direction because one of the things that comes up consistently in our research is that children meet Jesus when they have opportunities for these sub-vocal emotional connection with kids, with adults, and with Jesus in the context Mm -hmm. of children's church ministry. And we can't create these. And there's, of course, lots of connection here with mindfulness practice, emotion regulation, this sense of cultivating this deep, almost sub-vocal sense of like, oh, this is who we are. And this is who I am. And I am seen. I am safe. I am valued. That sense, which of course is communicated through relationship, that can't be easily cultivated if we're constantly on the stage shooting firecrackers, real or metaphorical. But it's not to say that there's not a space for those firecrackers. Thinking about ourselves as whole people, we are not just entities in need of entertainment. And I actually think that our hearts cry out against that. And that, uh, in many ways, instead of trying to create this parallel, we have culture, this entertain me, numb the pain culture. Instead of trying to create like a Christian parallel to that, I I think that the real countercultural way of operating would be to say, we're actually just going to do the thing that we think we've been called to, cultivating, creating relationships, facilitating this emotional connections, creating these ritualistic, liturgical internalization processes of formation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there is something really powerful about this kind of emotional component. Yeah, totally. I don't really remember what games I played in Sunday school. Like, oh, I remember we played this game and it was like so fun. You know, here I am, whatever how old I am, <laughs> 30 years later after being in Sunday school or whatever. I remember like there was this one teacher and I thought she was so cool. And I loved how she talked to us and the way that she told stories or the way that she asked me about how I was doing or what I thought. So that tracks with my experience pretty well. Churches spend a lot of money on like fancy curriculum, video resources and cool graphics and stuff, but that's not necessarily what sticks and what does the developmental work. One of the things that I think is really interesting out of the children's ministry research, I'll kind of scope it up, 
children's church pastors, I think pastors in general, like they are in the pastorate, not for the fame, not for the money, right? These things are not why they're there. They're there because they have a genuine heart and a love for people and they want to see people come to meet Jesus and kind of the life change that this can produce. And then at the same time, if you actually observe what happens in church, so thinking specifically about children's ministry here, we often expect kids to show up with that already achieved. And so as soon as a child starts misbehaving or acting out, which can be really disruptive and really problematic, we don't have a good way to address that. And so even though we might say like, come as you are, Jesus wants (laughs) to meet you here. Oftentimes what it looks like in practice is come as we need you to be to engage in the activities that we've designed for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you can't, we're going to call your parents out of service (laughs) and we're going to take you out of here. And although I understand that impulse, I think it's wrong because Mm -hmm. it doesn't allow for the possibility that church might actually be the thing that promotes the change that we want to bring about. I mentioned this because we can have the right goal in mind, but not the right path to get there. Churches that will say things like, you learn in small groups, get in a small group. Sunday morning, we're going to give you information, but you really need to process this in relationship and in community. And I'm 100% on board with that, at least that idea. But then where's the path to make it happen? I can't actually afford to have babysitting once a week for all of my children. So how am I going to get to a place where I can do this. And we've tried different models with like, well, the kids are there and there's space for that. But I do wonder how we as a church, and I'm including me in this church, I'm not trying to say like the pastor has this problem of mine that they need to solve. But how do we say this is something we value and we are going to do what we can to remove the barriers that prevent you from being able to engage. So that way, when you are willing to take a step, we have partnered with you. So in many ways, it's more like a systemic discipleship model. I think psychology can help. And even the way that psychologists think, maybe not just psychologists, scientists more generally, the way that we think about problems is a little bit of this kind of reverse engineered specific scope of what kinds of evidence could we look for to ask and answer these important questions. We have these goals. How do we know we're achieving them? And what can we do to better align the practices that we see with these goals that we say we have as a church? I was curious about, you have this role now at your institution that is around shaping research and where do you see yourself taking that? What are your hopes and dreams around the research culture at your institution? I want to see the Christian Academy leading in asking good questions. I think that there's actually a lot of opportunity in Christian higher education to take the difficult but so important slow route to asking and answering research questions. Because we tend not to exist in these publish or perish, always look for the low-hanging fruit to make sure that you can pad your resume, because that's not generally the space that we exist in, we can do the slow work, the hard work of interdisciplinary collaboration to chip away at problems that are far greater than any one person could try to answer. So that way, when I'm thinking about like a popular news source, when they want to know something about any particular topic, 
right Mm -hmm. alongside cutting edge state universities, there would be names with Christian affiliations that we could be that city on the hill speaking directly to the culture in which we're actively embedded in and contributing to. And I think that research is a really critical way to make that contribution. I think it's central to the power structures of our culture. And so we want Christians at the table, but I also think it's a really excellent means to provide relief from suffering and the promotion of human flourishing in the kinds of questions that we can ask and answer through research. Kind of working on that climate of being at Christian institutions that aren't lacking sort of a research focus are missing an opportunity to be a voice to the culture on these big questions around whatever, climate, technology, and the way technology is affecting children and all these sorts of big things that require that interdisciplinary approach too. And to prepare our students to contribute to those questions, to equip them with the skills, not just of good thinking, of integration conceptually or theoretically, but to actually start to think about what does this mean in a potential for daily living Mm -hmm. or careers in science where I can ask and answer these kinds of questions. I I tell my students the first time we meet, one of my favorite verses is Colossians 3.23. And that absolutely informs my philosophy of Christian higher education, that I believe that we should work with excellence, not perfection, because perfection and excellence are not the same thing, Mm -hmm. but we should work with excellence Because we are not trying to produce to make other people think that we're awesome. We are trying to produce as co-creators in this culture that God has entrusted us with. And so that actually gives me a lot of freedom, but also like a fair amount of, oh, I better take this serious. Yeah. Because it's not just me hoping that people think I'm cool, but it's (laughs) actually me picking up the mantle that God has given us. But it's nice when people think you're cool, too. I mean, I think that ship has sailed a long time ago for me. <laughs> Just let that go. You're like, whatever. I'm yeah. Time. yeah, maybe that's actually why it's my favorite verse. I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was a really cool way to end. But if there's anything else you wanted to share that you thought we didn't get to. The things I would say, it's called First Aid Mental Health is a resource for pastors who just want kind of an entry into what is mental health? How do I think about it? How do I know when to refer? It's geared for churches and for pastors. Dang, you know all the good resources. It's great. Well, that'll definitely be in the show notes. Okay. That's definitely relevant. I think that was probably the big one that I wanted to mention. Also, I'll say this, you know, you're like, do you have anything else? No, let me tell you something else. I was chatting with my husband the other day about how God has been speaking to me lately. And one of the things that I realized is that God has used my engagement with science to really reshape my understanding of how the world is, but also how it ought. So I'm coming from a Christian foundation, grew up in the church, had an incredible exemplar, my parents, Christian education, the whole nine yards. So I've had this understanding, like the body of Christ, relationships are important, but that wasn't actually enough to get me to live in any meaningful way that values relationships. 
But as I've been trying to do this integration work and been reading about what do relationships matter, and I've been doing this work in children's ministry and seeing how relationships that feel kind of silly, like playing video games with a volunteer before church, that doesn't feel spiritual. And yet we see those kinds of relational interactions totally upend people's lives in the best possible way. And so I have been in some sense surprised that the science that I've been reading has come alive the way that it has in a way that enriches what I read in scripture. And I'm actually really excited. I'm in this position at this cross point in my life where I'm really excited to see where my path goes because I feel like I've approached this doorway and I'm wanting to walk through the door. I don't know what's behind the other side in terms of like knowledge and understanding and relational capacity and what this means for how God is forming me. I just think it's really exciting. I'm excited too. 